Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm really excited to be able to speak with you today. Um, as Brian was mentioning, uh, a few weeks back, I gave this lesson on grace to your brothers and sisters in the West Side Church, and uh, that's where I'm from. And uh, it was uh, great for Brian to uh, call me. I felt encouraged that he, once they, uh, once you guys came up with a four-week series on grace, he thought, let's ask Tim to come do his lesson. So, uh, but because Brian is organized, I mean, he already had the four-week topics laid out and up on the website and everything. So when he asked me, he actually, um, at that time, gave me the title of the lesson that I had already created. That's kind of an interesting dilemma. Um, so I asked him, what, you know, what, what's the topic? He said, it's indescribable. And I thought, perfect. That's so generic, I could do anything. But then it hit me this morning that this title, indescribable, is probably not the best topic to do a long sermon on. It's probably not even a great medium-length sermon. And in fact, probably the shorter your lesson, the more likely you are to hit the target of indescribable, right? So uh, thank you very much, Brian. I notice he's already looking at his watch. So um, let's get underway. Uh, a couple weeks back on Memorial Day, I celebrated my 30th anniversary as a disciple of Jesus. And it's amazing to me that um, only recently have I started to have some breakthroughs in my personal understanding and application of God's grace for me. And um, uh, I love thinking about it. But if any of you know me, you know I'm a very slow processor. My wife can uh, attest to that. I process things slowly. And you can get it. After, if after 30 years I'm just starting to get grace, I'm not real good at it, right? But I've been reading a lot of books. And uh, I'm not a great book reader either. I, I read slowly. And uh, if I read too much at any one time, I get really sleepy. So, uh, but it's inspired me to uh, have some breakthroughs. What I am good at, however, watching movies. I love movies. And uh, I love previews to movies. How many of you guys love movie previews? Yes? Amen. Uh, in fact, if you're with me and we're going to see a movie and we happen to be running a little late, uh, you might mention, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just miss a couple previews. you at that point have immediately been judged not a movie-going friend. Okay, no, that's, that's a little silly, okay. So uh, a few months ago, my wife and I went to see the movie Les Miserables. How many of you guys have seen that movie? A lot, right? Did you guys like it? And a couple good previews, right? So um, it's taken from the epic Broadway musical, and the movie opens with the main hero, his name is Jean Valjean, being released from prison. He stole a loaf of bread when he was younger, and then he was put in prison for 20 years. So he did wrong, 
But then through extreme punishment, he himself was wronged. And he's given this yellow probationary paper, which signifies to all who look for his identification that Jean Valjean is an ex-convict, a criminal and a thief. He tries to find work, but no one at that time was willing to give an ex-convict a job. So he's on the street with no home, no support, and no hope. But then one night he's taken in by a priest who feeds him, who allows him a chance to bathe, and gives him a bed for the night. But that night, after all are asleep, Jean Valjean steals much of the silverware in the church and takes off into the night. He's promptly caught red-handed by the local authorities and dragged back before the priest and, and thrown down. They've beaten and shackled him and are ready to take him back to prison. They return the silverware to the priest and tell him that John even tried to tell them that these valuables were a gift from the priest. So at that point, the priest does something remarkable. He tells the police, the police that Jean, in fact, was telling the truth. That the only error was that he left some of the most valuable of the silverware. And so the priest gets a couple of candlesticks and places them in Jean's hands. He dismisses the police and then turns to the broken man and tells him to use this silver this gift, this grace, to become an honest man. The grace that was showed Jean Valjean cuts through to his heart. He is torn with how he had seen the world through the eyes of nature and now is confronted with a new reality. A reality that now has hope. One where Jean Valjean the one he used to come to identify with was no longer accurate, no longer his reality. Let's go ahead and play the clip.
Jean Valjean is transformed by the priest's grace. It changes his perspective, his direction, and his life. He had seen life in terms of nature. Right? The world hated him and he hated the world. His creed was, an eye for an eye. His motto was, turn your heart into stone. Then he was touched by grace. He was able to tear up the identity that that yellow identification paper claimed him to be. How people saw him to be. And how he saw himself. And he was able to now see himself through the eyes of grace. He starts a new story with his new, a truer identity. My first point, grace illuminates our true identity. Over the next four weeks, you're going to be hearing a series of lessons on grace taken from the book in the Bible, Ephesians. And uh, Ephesians actually is a letter that the preacher Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. And as Paul writes it, he's wanting the Ephesian Christians to understand some basic perspectives or truths about who they are and what they have. Let's take a look at Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the Holy in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul makes the point that he wants them to see from their hearts the hope that they have, their future. And then he talks about the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. So it's easy to read this 
and just assume it's talking about our inheritance in heaven. But if you look closer, scholars tend to actually believe that it's not talking about our inheritance, but rather God's inheritance. This is describing who we are to God. Do you hear the incredible worth here? You are the riches of His glorious inheritance. You are valuable to our Father. You are glorious. You are someone who makes God feel rich. Paul knows that it will make a difference in how they see themselves, how they live and how they act toward others, and how motivated they are to connect with God if they can but have their eyes opened to this truth. But from the very first part of the first book in the Bible, we can read how special we are. Genesis 1, 27 says we are created in the image of God. Philippians 2.15 says we shine like stars in the sky or stars in the universe as another translation explains it. Psalm 8 verse 5 says that God has crowned us with glory and honor. God reminds us of who we really are and what we're capable of. It has been described we have a divine spark. Grace calls us to identify with who God considers us to be. We are created by a perfect God. We are accepted by a perfect God. We are loved by a perfect God. He teaches us. He longs for us, you and I, to call Him Father. This goes against the identity that nature teaches us where our value is measured by our looks, by our talent, our skills, our accomplishments, how good or wealthy we are, how educated or well-connected or strong we are. Grace cuts through our distorted or false image of who we are. Grace cuts through our fears and insecurities. It cuts through the shame we carry for the dark, embarrassing sin, addiction, abuse, flaws that we carry. It cuts through and shines on us brightly. But not just to expose our sin, but rather to expose who we really are. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, right? But to save it. Early in Jesus' ministry, He comes into a very tense situation um, people were trying to trap him in his words, but it gives us an incredible lesson on grace. The story is in John 8, verses 2 through 11. Let's read that together. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap. 
in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, while the woman was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The woman had been caught in the very act of adultery and dragged before Jesus. Odds are, probably not fully clothed, perhaps with a blanket around her. She's thrown out in front of him. How does Jesus respond? It says he stoops down to write on the ground with his finger, which is very curious. Did you ever wonder why he stooped down to do this? Perhaps he stooped so that she might no longer be the lowest one in the circle. She was brought in before him the lowest. But Jesus was willing to go lower. Grace is the God who stoops down. To be born in a stable, to be placed in a manger, to live 30 years anonymously, to die with criminals. It says, then Jesus stands up, perhaps directly between her and her accusers. He says, he who is without sin can be the first to throw a stone. And those who were judging her, condemning her, all left, one by one. So, at this point, he tells her that he does not condemn her. And, of course, Jesus was the one and only who could condemn her. Wow. Talk about needed grace at a time in your life when you most needed it. Your darkest, most embarrassing hour. But it's interesting. After that, he adds, go and leave your life of sin. Grace confronts us with who we truly are. And it inspires us to change. Because you're better than that. We are made in the image of God. We have that divine spark in our essence. Grace helps us to see that we have a special purpose. You don't have to live according to your addictions. Your bitterness, your selfishness, your sin. You're better than that. Grace challenges us to honor others because we see them in this way as well. We respect and honor each other for the God-given value that they have. They too are created in the image of God. And they too have a special purpose. Many years ago, my wife was seeing a therapist. She was trying to work through some experience that, experiences that she had while she was growing up. During that time, one of her default emotions was anger. 
she can tell you actually that she had a very narrow understanding of her emotions at that time. I mean, she was either angry or she just wasn't. And one thing she did to help her during this time was she created on her own a little uh, uh, emotions card. It was a three-by-five card where she detailed um, dozens of different emotions. So the exercise was to try to put a name on some of the emotions that she was experiencing other than just angry. So it enabled her to choose from more specific emotions like disappointment, frustration, irritation, impatience, hurt, loneliness, abandonment. The purpose was to help her to get more in touch with what was going on underneath the anger. There is a saying in some psychology circles that you have to name it to tame it. Meaning that before you can grow through the issues or the feelings or the memories that are holding you back, making you stuck, you have to be better at understanding the experiences and the triggers and the underlying emotions. My wife began a journey toward recovering, recovery from a deep hurt in her past by getting in touch with and owning the messy feelings that she had. And I'm very proud of her. It's come a long way. We can be so afraid to be revealed, terrified that people will see the real us. My second point is that grace gives us the freedom to own our mess. I want to look at three different types of messes that we can have. The first is the mess of our personality. My sister Jody and her husband Mike lead a small church in northern Virginia. And recently someone suggested to her that she should read a book. But they didn't tell her what exactly the book was about. So she went online and looked it up and started reading the introduction to the book. As she read the introduction, she broke down in tears as the ideas resonated deeply within her. So the name of the book was Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. It talks about how our society holds up people who are extroverts and says this is the ideal, which can make introverts feel like there's something wrong with them. The book talks about how being an introvert actually is just a different temperament which has its valuable benefits. She bought the book and she has read it and it's changed her worldview. She sees her children, her husband, and herself in a totally new light. She sees the value where she used to see weakness. She now accepts and even honors what she once tried to change or correct. Now, how many in here would consider yourself an introvert? Okay, a good number. And, and really, there's probably double that, right? Because most introverts wouldn't want to raise their hand. Although I know, I think I saw a couple of extroverts raising their hands, uh, perhaps just getting a little extra attention. It's interesting that how we can look at others, and we want to be like them, which is not always a bad thing, but 
to the exclusion of our own personality, who we are. We don't honor the unique gifts and talents and temperament that God put into us. So in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells a story about three men who were given bags of gold. Uh, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, 14 to 30, Jesus starts the story where a man was going to take a long trip. But before he leads, leaves, he entrusts his wealth, his bags of gold, to his servants with the expectation that they would put it to work and try to earn more. But one of the, the servants decides to bury what was given him into the ground. When the master returned, he confronts that servant. We'll pick it up in verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. This servant had been given something unique by the master. Resources, energies, gifts. Yet out of fear... He hid the gift, bearing it in the ground so that no one, not even he himself, could see it or have access to it or appreciate the gift the Master had given. Does this perhaps speak to you? Do you have unique gifts or personality that perhaps you compare to other people? They may have more numerous or shinier or more valuable in your mind, and you'd rather hide yours and try to do something else or be someone else. Grace helps you to see that you are uniquely created by a loving God. You've been given a personality, a temperament that is a gift. God wants you to own it, to use it, to put it to work. The second mess is the mess of our weakness. The natural world says we need to hide our weaknesses, right? The things that would shame us. We should cover up our mistakes. Hide when we really blow it. So a couple of months ago, in preparation for our uh, special Easter service, our worship leader, uh, Daniel Luna, many of you know, got inspired to give me a keyboard solo during one of the Easter songs. Now, I am no Mark. Um, but I, I took piano lessons long ago, right, when I was a kid. So I was excited to get a piano solo. I practiced and I practiced beforehand. My 10-year-old daughter, uh, Alex, was with me as I worked my way through, beginning with real rough patches through to the point where I was nailing it. So there were high fives all around. When we went through the rehearsal on Easter morning, it sounded great. Then the service began, and then it was time to perform the actual song. The band and the server, the singers were grooving. The whole congregation was singing and feeling it. There might have been even some heavy swaying, maybe some dancing. 
And then it was time for the keyboard solo. Right? The first couple notes were way off. And then it rapidly went downhill from there. It was a fast-moving train that never even got started on the tracks. The tracks of that we call harmonious music, right? Sadly, those tracks just never fit in that Easter morning. My poor daughter, sitting with the preteens in our church, she started crying as I steadily hit each wrong key with the wrong rhythm. Afterwards, our... our very spiritual and very talented brother, Cy Serrano, many of you know him, came up to me afterwards and, and asked, bro, did you practice that part? It's like, oh. He even uh, pr- uh, proceeded to introduce me to a couple of brothers that, uh, and suggested we might try them out as alternative keyboard players in the future. Amen, right? For those giant opportunities to broadcast your humiliation. I want to read an incredible passage about weakness in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Many scholars speculate about what it could have been. But the fact that Paul never specifically states what it is, I think, is brilliant. We may not all relate to a health issue or a difficult person to deal with who opposes us or depression. But most of us can relate to some kind of thorn Something from the evil one that opposes us, makes life difficult, or robs our contentment. The point is that Paul embraced his own weakness and his failings. The people that disrespected him, that abused him, the terrible circumstances, the things that didn't go his way. But look at what it says. He didn't just own up to his weaknesses. He boasted in them. He honored them. He held them up in front of everyone for all to see. Why? The grace of God gave him a new perspective, gave him a new path. It goes against nature where only the strong survive, where only the talented or the skilled, the responsible or the smart, the educated or the wealthy are successful. He didn't say here that he was working to overcome his weakness or transform them or grow in them, but rather he boasted in them. The more his weaknesses were evident, the more brightly God's grace shined and the stronger he was as a result. Grace allows us to talk about our weaknesses, to not be ashamed, to own them, 
the third mess I have is the mess of our sin. So one of my weaknesses is that I'm not a good handyman uh, around the home. I've been known to procrastinate some home improvement projects, or perhaps more accurately, home, please fix it, it's broken projects. So a few months ago, one of the cabinet doors in our back bathroom came off. You can see that right here. The screws just pulled right out of the wood. So it sounds pretty simple, right? The only problem is the wood is a bit soft, so I didn't think I could use the same screws to hold it in. So eight months later, we're still, uh, we were still not opening the door. You'd have to actually kind of pick it up and move it over to the side if you wanted to get anything out of there and then pick it back up and, and place it in place uh, when you were finished. Um, it wasn't really a door anymore, right? The, the problem was that sometimes the bottom slid out a little, and you walk in the bathroom, you step on it, and it would hurt. Or sometimes you would kick it in, and then the top would fall over on your feet, and, and that would hurt. And in fact, there was one time when I was uh, putting, putting it in his proper place again and, and trying to get the correct angle of lean and uh, then my wife came in the bathroom, opened the bathroom door, and then, and then my finger got smashed between the, the cabinet door and the, and the uh, backing. And that hurt. It still hurts. Um, why didn't I do something about that? Eight months, I procrastinated. Why? I didn't want to get help because every man should be able to fix the simple things around the house, right? There's a, a mixture of both my pride and avoidance of something I feel might be difficult. I'd say it's both my weakness and my sin coming together into a perfect storm of inaction. So what I did, I called my favorite handyman a, a month ago, Dave DeLuca, and to ask him how I might fix it. So once I was able to explain the situation so that he understood it, it took him all of five seconds to tell me the solution. Uh, just get bolts and nuts and washers and configure them a certain way. But my sin, my pride, the long-term avoidance caused us to be embarrassed about our home. This is my bathroom. Caused frustration in my marriage. Caused some periodic pain in the foot. What about the sins that go deeper, that are darker, more shameful? The addictions and abuses. The fears that control our thoughts and actions, the insecurities that cripple us. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 18, 9-14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's go ahead and read that together. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else, for I do not cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. 
For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisees saw things, saw God working the way the world works, right? How nature works. But those who do good earn God's acceptance and should receive reward and blessing. See how he describes himself, right? He's so glad he's not like the others. He makes the, a list of things, the people, that he isn't like. He looks down on others. But instead, the man God calls righteous was the man who owned who he was. He owned his sin. He understood it. He claimed it. He put himself in a position to be looked down upon by men. Right? He's a tax collector. Back in their society, a, a known sheet in the eyes of the people. And here he is praying there in the temple. He wasn't afraid of how he looked before men. He came to the temple He couldn't even look up. And there he beats his chest, perhaps drawing attention from the other people, but not doing it in order to draw their attention. In fact, the one typically who looks the worst before men, the one that looks the best before God. Grace cuts through the mess of our sin that burdens us, embarrasses us and enslaves us and tells us that we are accepted just as we are. We can own our mess, our true personality and temperament, our weakness, and grace allows us to take responsibility for our sins. We are free to own all of these pieces of ourselves that we might not be able to make sense of. A professor at UCLA's School of Medicine, Dr. Daniel Siegel, came out with a groundbreaking book called Mindsight, the New Science of Personal Transformation. He discusses amazing recent research that shows us that the best predictor of a child's attachment to their parents is the parent's ability to narrate their own childhood in a coherent fashion. So he explains that parents who have made sense of their lives as revealed in their coherent life narratives will be those that somehow offer their children patterns of communication that will promote well-being. Okay, what that means, if you can tell your story in a coherent fashion, and I would say tell your story through the eyes of grace, it makes a huge difference in how you will live your life and your ability to connect with other people. The world is messy. Our lives are messy. I love the message version of the scripture in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. It says, So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today and gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. So how can we better connect with the grace that surrounds our lives? Here are three places, practically, that we can start. First, go back in order to go forward. Start, start taking the time to examine your past 
and retell into a coherent story seen through the lens of God's grace. You may need a good friend. You may need a Christian therapist to help you navigate that road. But there's a great book for those who would like to begin this journey. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scuzzaro. I would highly recommend it. Secondly, get in touch. Journal. Get in touch with yourself. What sins you're ashamed of, you can't get open about. What weaknesses you're embarrassed by, what you're alike when no one else is around. And then take time to write it down. The very process of journaling your thoughts and feelings helps you become more self-aware and helps you to own your mess. you got to name it to tame it, right? Understand it before you can own it. Lastly, talk about it. Tell someone your thoughts. If you feel like you don't have anyone who's a safe place for you to tell these thoughts, then tell someone that you're working on finding a safe place. Give others the freedom to maybe become that safe place for you or at least give you help locating one. When we become safe places for each other, when we take risks, we get transparent and vulnerable with each other, we connect and we build a connected community of grace that draws people out of our world where nature's principles rule. So, in closing, there's an acclaimed filmmaker by the name of Terrence Malick who has made just six films over a filmmaking career of 40 years. His very first two films uh, were masterpieces. They came out way back in the 70s. And then all of a sudden, there was, there was he basically disappeared for about 20 years. They think he was in France. But before he came out with another movie in the late 90s that went on to be nominated for seven Academy Awards. His films are all critically acclaimed masterpieces, but he is notoriously private. If you go to his Wikipedia page, they don't even know exactly where he was born. He doesn't give interviews. He doesn't allow pictures or videos of himself to be used in the promotion of his films. He is basically the anti-Hollywood filmmaker, right? About ten years ago, word got out that Terrence Malick was uh, making a film about the creation of the world. But not much more information came out until the film was released in 2011 called The Tree of Life. I watched it with my wife, and after watching it, we both instantly felt we just didn't get it. It was equal parts slow and confusing. At the time, I didn't know whether I just didn't get the plot or if there even was a plot, right? But we knew it was pretty deep. So I will tell you this, however. There has never been a film that has stuck with me as much and continue to move me in a profound way and give me deep insights long after I've watched it. That's pretty crazy, right? I want to share with you the very opening scene now of that movie. 